Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation's state. Our guest today is former State Senator Martha Escutia. She's now the head of government relations at the University of Southern California and the vice chair of the California Emerging Technology Fund, where she's working to make high-speed internet available to all Californians. As COVID has made remote schooling and telehealth critical aspects of life, providing broadband access to every Californian is more important than ever. I hope you'll listen to this important conversation about what California can do now to close the digital divide. Well, Senator, thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me here. Great. Well, could you tell us a little bit about the California Emerging Technology Fund and what you focus on there? Okay. The California Emerging Technology Fund was founded in 2006 pursuant to a merger between Pacific Bell and AT&T. And basically the merger um, that the PUC uh, imposed the merger as well as con- conditions on the merger. And that was to have a, a, a community fund uh, capitalized to the tune of $60 million. A community, a community fund de- uh, devoted to the um, issue of bridging the digital divide. So we've been at this since 2006. Great. So uh, you really focus on advocacy throughout the state, education on the scope of these issues, but you're real advocates before Sacramento too, isn't that right? That's correct. And we also work a lot with nonprofits and community-based organizations because if anyone's going to be involved, say in telehealth, it's going to be the local community health clinic. If anyone's going to be involved in in, in helping us, you know, um, lay down some broadband, it's that requires not only advocacy with the ISPs because you have to make, you know, investments, but it also requires advocacy with community groups so that they can see the the benefit of having access to broadband. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about the scope of the digital divide in California. I was really surprised to to read some of these stats about just how widespread the lack of broadband access is. So yeah, could you kind of put this in context for us? Well, we did, the CETF uh, did a survey in 2019, and we found that there has been some improvement in the sense that about 88% of the state's households now have access to high-speed internet, but we still have 12% of the households. That's basically one in eight homes that do not have access to the internet. And then the data gets kind of um, more depressing when you go um, county by county with Los Angeles County, my home, my home county, um, 16% of our residents in LA County are unconnected, but also in San Francisco, 12% are unconnected, as well as the Inland, em, um, Inland Empire, we have uh, 9% unconnected, and um, in the Central Valley, also 9%. Unconnected, so there are pockets of, of what I would call uh, high urban areas, maybe um, you know uh, defined by poverty, as well as rural areas that still have high levels of uh, households not connected to the internet. So those those numbers are interesting because you have a higher percentage not connected in San Francisco than you do in some rural areas, and and that's um, that surprises me, of course. But I suppose that's more a reflection of it's, is it really becoming less of a technology issue at this point and just more of a pure economic access issue? It's, it's really economic access because even if people have access to a, a computer device, a tablet, or even a cell phone, 
um, many households still cannot afford the monthly uh, fee to have access to the internet. And many times these low cost offers that, that the internet providers offer, many times those offers are very limited in scope as well as limited in time. Understood, understood. So, so yeah, we've gone from a time where actually connecting physically the broadband was, was the big obstacle. That's not really the issue anymore, it sounds like. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, Brian, we still have to connect major broadband up and down the state along, uh, along the spine of the state, especially the Central Valley, in order to have access to those rural areas. And that's why, you know, I have been a proponent of, of asking the high-speed rail authority, for example, that as they're laying down the track for high-speed rail or Caltrans and their rights of way, as you're dealing with your rights of way, lay down fiber optic. But before I can do that, you know, I need to make sure that the ISPs want to provide, want to do that type of investment. And that's where we have many times the problem. That they, don't want, that they don't want to invest. And then if they do invest, many times they do not offer low-cost offers. Makes sense. Well, I, I want to spend um, most of our time talking about what we can do about this and some of the really interesting policy solutions you've proposed. But before we get to that, could, could you just talk about some of the highlights of, of why this issue is so critical? You mentioned telehealth, and that's, of course, exceptionally relevant in the COVID world. But, right. But what, but what, what are the main arguments you use when you talk to legislators and policymakers about why this is so critical? Well, one thing, if there is a silver lining to COVID, to the pandemic, is that it has really brought front and center the fact that we need to really take seriously the whole issue about being connected to the internet, not only for health purposes, telehealth, and by the way, telehealth is here to stay. It's going to happen. It's here to stay. But uh, it's also a good way uh, to offer medical services to rural areas as well as urban medically underserved areas. So telehealth is a very good way of providing key health services and we need internet access for that. Second of all, when I read in the headline in the LA Times that 25% of LAUSD students had not checked online, that really bothered me tremendously. It, it basically exacerbates the academic gap, the homework gap, and a lot of our kids are behind. They were behind already, they're gonna be more behind now. And that's also the result of having no access to the internet. It breaks my heart when I read in the paper that there are moms and dads who take their kids to the parking lot at McDonald's in order to do their homework there and have access to the internet from, from how it comes out of McDonald's. We shouldn't, that shouldn't be happening in California. Yeah. The land of technology, that we should not be going to McDonald's to have access to the internet. Yeah, that's a, that's a really vivid example, really disturbing. Okay, so one of the things that you've talked about, Senator, is extending the authorization for the California Public Utilities Commission to raise money on this issue. So how would that work? It would work through the California Ad uh, Advanced Services Fund, which is a, 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 a certain amount of money, couple of, a couple of cents that ratepayers pay, and is collected, obviously, in the telephone bills. And, uh, and that money goes to the California Advanced Services Fund for the PUC to basically, you know, uh, award grants for groups that are doing digital divide issues, you know, et cetera. The problem has been that that, um, that fund, that authority to collect those, that money is going to expire in about two years. 
And so I would think that now is the time to, first of all, re reauthorize it and extend it for longer, but also target the money collected so that the money goes to either telehealth or online distance learning. Because those are two main issues that are impacting our state right now, health and education, and how the internet and access to the internet impacts that. We hope it happens. You know, the, the California Emerging Technology Fund introduced, uh, had a, uh, an assembly member, assembly member Aguirre Curry to introduce a bill in this very truncated legislative session to basically start pushing for a greater authorization, uh, uh, an authorization of, of the fund to go longer and to also target the money. At the very least, we're having a discussion, which is, you know, it's a discussion to be had and hopefully the legislature will take notice. Well, it's great that you got the bill started. It, it sounds like an impossible issue to argue against. I'm curious what the response has been to the bill. Is, is anyone expressing um, any sort of organized opposition to this? Not yet, but we're expecting it from the ISPs. You know, they don't want to collect the money. You know, who knows? There might be even some, some groups out there who don't want to pay the money. But, I mean, it's a very small investment to basically do what's needed, which, frankly, you know, if we had that kind of money being collected by the PUC, we would be able to draw down federal funds. And the FCC is already giving out billions of dollars in funds for telehealth purposes. So why can't California be up there first in line to try to get an FCC grant that we get to match with the money raised through the Advanced Services Fund? You know, I just wish that the that that we as you know as community people as well as policymakers, you know, first of all, identify this issue as as really a top issue for California. And I'm not talking about just getting computers or Chromebooks and and, and get a hotspot. That's 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 a band-aid approach. We don't need hotspots. We actually need fiber being laid down the spine of California. We need a fiber network. You know, um, and that requires a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. So I figure if the FCC, if the um, PUC can start raising the money, we can then go to the FCC and get more money. And trust me, just like Franklin Delano Roosevelt was able to electrify rural America, why can't California, you know, do that electrification version in California? And why can't Governor Newsom and the legislature be the first ones in the country to have all their residents have access to the internet. Certainly would be a great legacy for, for this governor and this legislature. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the ISP opposition. Let, let's talk about that. Is that just because they feel like to customers, it feels like a bill increase that they're getting paid for or what, what is yes. their, that's, that, that's, what, what? That, that's what they will always argue. They will always argue that the customers are going to get, you know, angry and they're going to drop our service because they view it as a bill increase, you know, you know, frankly, I think the burden is on the ISPs to tell, to frankly explain to people what are all the fees that they charge because they charge other fees besides for the California Advanced Services Fund. Why don't they tell people what is that money going to? You know, people, I think, would be more than willing to pay one or two cents more for some of these fees, you know, if they know that it's going go to lay, go into laying down broadband up and down the state of California and their kids will be able to have greater access to the Internet as opposed to going to McDonald's for the Absolutely. internet. 
Absolutely. Okay, so you mentioned the transportation's project issue, and that that's a really interesting idea. We've seen a lot of these uh, these projects being accelerated in in some ways during the the shutdowns. What is it that Caltrans can do right now on this topic? Well, I think it would first require leadership from from all the policymakers as well as the governor to basically bring in, in my opinion, the ISPs and say, you know what, we have to start investing on the hard infrastructure needed in order to make this a reality. And we need, and that's basically those fiber optic cables. You know, if, if we already have Caltrans digging around in their rights of way, if we already have the high-speed rail authority, you know, constructing, you know, uh, a, a, a high-speed rail line along the Central Valley, and um, why can't we say, you know, as you're digging for that, lay down the fiber optic cable? You know, but that requires, first of all, a will, um, a political will, and, and also the willingness to, um, to basically make that kind of investment. And many times, you know, those investments are not made. And that's why many times you have a lot of communities that are not only not connected, but they're also underconnected, which basically means they have access to a very slow internet. So is that something that Caltrans can do without legislative authority, or is that something that you think would require legislation? I think it would require legislation, but more importantly, before that, it would require a, an agreement mm -hmm. on the part of, of the ISPs that they're willing to make these type of investments. And I think the state can also be a partner with the ISPs in making those type of investments. And first of all, we collect more money for the Advanced Services Fund, and we also draw down on federal funds for this. And trust me, if, if, if we have a new administration, there's going to be a major infrastructure, you know, public works kind of, you know, bill package that will be the trillions of dollars, you know. Um, and this is time for a new deal, a new deal 2.0. That's a great point. That's a great point. Might as well. Might as well do it, you know, because our infrastructure now, according to a new deal 2.0, is very different from what FDR had to deal with. But, you know, but the concept is still there. And, and, when, when, and when the U.S. comes together that way, we all benefit, you know. Um, and so, therefore, but we need money. I mean, it's not like the feds are going to give us the money willy-nilly. I mean, states have to come up with their share of the funds, too. And that's why I'm suggesting to extend uh, the, the collection into the Advanced Services Fund and draw down the, the FCC dollars for it. It's not like there's no money out there. There is money out there so that the state can play a role in this and being a partner, and the ISPs don't have to shoulder the entire risk on their own. So, so I'm curious as to the response you get from tech companies besides the ISPs. I don't know that ISP is really a tech company anymore, but, but, but there has to be an economic incentive for the people who sell technology products to have deeper broadband access. So they would seem like logical partners in this. Have they been helpful in your cause? Absolutely, they've been very, very helpful. And in fact, you know, um, the technology companies like Cisco, for example, very critical player and stakeholder in our latest project of the CETF in San Jose, in which San Jose as a local government basically said, I have this amount of money. Cisco, will you join me as a partner? And can we provide, you know, basically access to the internet in the city of San Jose uh, at the schools, at the schools? And it has become a, become a very successful project at the schools. So, um, yeah, you know, um, tech companies love those type of projects. 
but ultimately tech companies don't make the hard the 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 hardcore investments in, in which what I'm talking about, which is we've got to lay down that fiber optic cable across the state. Got it. Um, so let's talk about the California Department of Education. Um, they're obviously in the spotlight with all of the teleeducation going on. What can they do to help on this issue? Well, I think for sure, you know, they could at the very least, you know, um, talk to your school districts and find out, you know, which ISP is offering low cost offers and for how long. And they should basically, you know, send a note to all the parents. You know, for that matter, you know, the ISPs, you know, should send, you know, um, notes in their, um, in their mailings to people or maybe even utility companies, you know, send a note that you know that you can have access to low cost, you know, uh, internet, you know, call up Verizon at 1-800-Verizon. You know, I think that's a, a very good way of reaching people uh, by basically putting those type of little notifications in the mail, you know, but for parents, I mean, that's a captive audience. A school district knows how to reach their parents. Right. At the very least, you know, they should be able to notify them of, um, of um, you know, special offers. So let's talk about it from that ISP perspective. There's these low-cost programs that they're supposed to provide. Are they made whole for offering those products, or is there an economic disincentive for them to not make it as widely available as possible? Well, first of all, you know, the low-cost offers, like I said, many times are limited in scope as well as limited in time. I think there is an economic incentive. You're basically finding a new client. Mm -hmm. And if that new client gets a good service from you, more than likely they'll sign up for the regular service. You know, but ultimately, I have always have said that this issue of really of digital divide, besides laying down the, the hard infrastructure in terms of fiber optic, it also becomes a, a question of the market. Of, of, of will the market come up with a price that's affordable? And, and, and that very much is supply and demand. Uh, but however, there's no reason why we can't have a low cost version of internet access. I myself uh, did the first low cost auto insurance program for the state of California. I basically said the state has an interest in creating a market so that everybody can become insured Granted, it's not going to be a, a policy with the bells and whistles, but at the very least, we will, handle, we will handle liability. I did that for auto insurance. I think maybe it's time for the state legislature to consider low-cost low cost, um, access to low-cost internet as truly a state problem that maybe we have to create the market by way of state legislation. And it's very hard to do. It's very hard to get involved as a policymaker in market forces. But if the policy issue is important enough, then I think we should do it as policymakers. Yeah, and it, and it just seems like it's coming to a head so completely with all these health issues, all these education issues. If we're essentially going to require students to learn from home, we're certainly going to have to provide yes. Wi-Fi to do so. So it seems like the right time for that conversation. The, the time is now, and I'm not, and I'm not going to waste the pandemic. <laughs> the the rom quote of never letting a good crisis go to waste, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. So let's. What what haven't we covered that the state can do? We talked about a few ideas here. You've got one bill introduced already on the CPUC authorization. Do you plan to seek more extensive legislation maybe next year? Well, it all depends what happens with this bill, you know. But I would assume that yes, we either might introduce legislation next year, 
uh, if not be supportive of other efforts. We have to see how the legislature is going to react to all this stuff, not only end of session, which is end of August, but I also don't have a sense as to what's going to happen in terms of legislation being introduced for next year, which is also a, a new legislative session. Uh, we'll have new legislators. Some of them will have retired. We have new senators, new assembly members. I would just hope that, you know, whoever's listening to this podcast, that as we are dealing with trying to get out of the pandemic, that I hope that people realize that the digital divide has always been with us. With a pandemic or without a pandemic, there's always been a digital divide. And you know what? No matter how hard we try, there will always be a digital divide because whereas we're now headed to 5.0, there are some people in rural areas who have dial-up. So, you know, uh, we will, some people will still fall behind and many times that might be a reflection of poverty or it might be a reflection of just having no access to, to lines and cell towers nearby. So, you know, I'm ready for that in terms of, you know, there always being a digital divide. I just want to get rid of dial-up, for example, and at least get people to 3.0 or 4.0 you know, uh, rather than, you know, let's start talking about 5G and say, wait a minute, you know, not everybody is even at, at, at a mid-level of access to the internet. So I think that this issue is one that will still be with us for many, many years. And I think it's frankly kind of sad that California being the cradle of technology has not taken a leadership role in this. Yeah, it certainly is strange when you think about the, the birthplace of the internet and the tech capital of, of the universe to see stats like that like, lagging behind. Um, let me ask you a broader question about financing this, and we've got a ton of budget fights going on in Sacramento, as you know right now, and you were in the middle of these fights for a long time. Um, and I'm curious as to your perspective on what Sacramento should be doing to close the budget gaps, whether it's on this topic or the million other things that are on their plate. Um, what, what's your sense of sort of where they are and do you think they're headed in the right direction? Oh my God, Brian, I'm not going to put myself <laughs> in the shoes of legislators today. I mean, the, the, the deficit that they have, the budget hole that they have is so astronomical that I never would have even imagined that when I first got there in 1992, when we thought that maybe a budget deficit of what, 10 billion was a lot. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously people always say we have to come up with, with, you know, doing an oil severance tax to, you know, gather revenues or changing, uh, I don't even want to say change Prop 13, just basically make sure that commercial property, when it's being traded or sold, that it's also subject to a fair market value assessment. And therefore that triggers, triggers taxation. Right now it's not subject to that, to a fair market value assessment. So, I mean, there are ways of doing this, but I'll be honest with you, you know, we've tried to do the oil severance tax before. It has been rejected soundly by the, by the voters. Uh, on this whole issue about, about commercial property, you know, it's not about amending Prop 13, but it's about make, basically closing the loopholes in Prop 13 so that commercial property owners really don't benefit from it because Prop 13 was aimed to help out senior citizens in their private homes. It was not aimed to help out owners of commercial property. So I'm hoping that at least on that issue, we might have a bit more left in this coming year. But other than, I, I can't think of other ways of, of generating revenue 
short of that and, and maybe even increasing taxes, but I know that there's we, we can't increase taxes when people are losing all their jobs. So it's just a horrific situation. And um, we just better hope that we get more money from the feds in order to basically, you know, um, backfill the hole that we have right now. And it's going to take several years. We can't do this in one year. Well, we have to basically be in deficit, deficit spending for several years and accept that and learn to live with that. And I know many people don't like to live with a deficit, but it is what it is. We also cannot go out there and do a whole field destruction of healthcare programs or, or educational programs or even social services to our elderly. We just cannot do that in a wholesale one-shot deal. Yeah, it's the most dangerous possible time to be cutting. It's, it's the worst possible time to be raising taxes. Um, that leads you to deficit spending, which supposedly we're not allowed to do, but, but as we see, the state finds creative ways to do it all the time. Um, Absolutely. You know, <laughs> and you know what? There's nothing wrong with deficit spending. First of all, no one got, we didn't, do, we didn't get into this problem because of our misspending. On the contrary, California was doing quite well in terms of saving money for a rainy day. We were actually spending our money very wisely and we had a roaring economy. Then the pandemic hit. That was, that's no fault of anyone. That's literally an act of God. A force majeure is what the pandemic is. And so I would hope that the voters are, are patient with their policymakers and with their governor and realize that the, that the hand that has been dealt to them as they're playing this game of poker is not a good hand right now. And so, therefore, some, some decisions have to be made, which are not very popular. So, so to your point here about um, deficit spending really being a necessity and not something we should be at all ashamed to do, we had Jim Wonderman from the Bay Area Council on a few weeks ago, and he's been pushing this idea about an economic recovery bond that would work similar to the bond during the, the Schwarzenegger administration to, to sort of help deal with the deficit issues. Um, I'm not actually sure if the timing, if you were in the legislature when that was going on, but is this something that you would consider to be one of the tools that the state should think about using right now? Absolutely. Everything should be on the table that would generate funds. I mean, you know, even uh, I think Senator Hertzberg has an idea that would allow businesses to pay, to pay their, um, their taxes ahead of time. And if they pay their tax ahead of time, they will get, I think, a 10% discount. That brings in money to the treasury, like, right now. Right. And that's what we need. Yeah. You know, I, the, pro the problem is, I don't know how many businesses can pay their taxes right now ahead of, ahead of time. Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea, and Senator Atkins has a, has a similar bill. Um, the, the idea of a broader-based economic recovery bond, to me, intuitively, just makes a ton of sense. Because this is a problem that we will get out of. We will have a vaccine. We will have herd, herd immunity one day. It's, it's not like a, a problem that you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it's going to be a rough few years. And, I, and when I, one of the things that I sort of like about the idea of a California bond is it's a way for Californians who can still afford to invest to bet on the recovery of the state. And, and we have a lot of things going for us, a lot of things that, that would lead you to think that that's actually a really good investment. I mean, I could, I mean, if they were to market that thing very nicely, you would have a lot of families buying those bonds for their babies. Yeah, exactly. It'd be a call to action, a way to bring in, you know, uh, the spirit of Californians, you know, you know into the recovery of, of the state. Yeah, like you, you know, I FDR. Think, I think it, right, just like <laughs> FDR. I mean, yeah. I really want our, I, I really want to see a mini FDR moment here in California. Well, not mini. We're a very large state and a very large economy, but 
You know, what happens in California, as you all know, it, it's a bellwether state. What happens in California goes east. It flows east. You know, yes. so it's a darn good idea. Yeah, Governor Newsom's been saying lately that California is the, uh, the coming attraction for the rest of the country, and I think that's right. Um, Senator, thank you for being here. Thank you for your years of service to the state, and thank you for all the work you're doing right now. If people want to find out more about your organization, where can they go? They can go to the California Emerging Technology Fund, which is www.cetf, and then UND, so it would be cetfund.org. You can Great. get, just go online right now. There's plenty of information there on Digital Divide and also plenty of information of the investments that we're making as an organization. And thank you for having us and for giving us the opportunity to, to deliver this message to your podcast. Thank you, our pleasure, and uh, great to have a chance to speak with you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Nation State of Play. Our producers are Hannah Miller and Jacqueline Artiaga. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. For more information, click through the link on your podcast app to our homepage. 